0: I'm wondering then how can the public, us, how could we best
1: support bats? Great question. Um, I guess don't like kill them if you find them <laughs> in your your homes or your schools. You know, a lot of people are very afraid of bats and, you know, it can be a little scary with something flying at you, but um, remember they're important and they're part of, you know, our ecosystem and they serve a purpose. So um, be cautious with them. If you're not comfortable having them removed from your home, then like call an expert. Um, Little things like putting up bat boxes can really help. You're giving bats like another opportunity to find a home. Um, That being said, just make sure you're following the instructions carefully when you're putting up bat boxes. You don't want it to be in a spot that's too warm because we have found issues where um, like the bats can overheat and there won't be a favorable place for them to live if it's not in a great position. But little things like putting up a bat box, making sure bats are removed safely from any areas you don't want them or allowing them to... Reside in your trees or your natural setting around you, um, instead of having them removed, um, is always good because we do benefit from their their existence um, within our our space.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. The Fulcrum is the University of Ottawa's legendary English newspaper, produced on the University of Ottawa campus in downtown Ottawa, the capital city of the north on the Great Turtle Island. Today on the show, we have a special exclusive with Reimagine Ottawa, They're doing a lot of work right now to bring to light the city of Ottawa's plan to destroy the experimental farm. At least 600 trees, many of which are close to 100 years old, and others are species from around the world that scientists have been preserving for decades, will all be gone, in order to put a new mega-hospital in the middle of the city. Why is this a problem? Aside from losing the trees, the National Capital Commission had already determined that Tani's pasture was the best site for the hospital, with existing infrastructure already in place, raising many questions that are yet to be answered. Also, earlier this week, I got to walk around the Byward Market with our features editor, Amira Benjamin. We talked to people we met in the streets, and we asked them about some of the issues that were affecting them. And Emma Williams is here in conversation with Laurent Gallant, a PhD candidate from the University of Ottawa. Her research involved the collection of fresh bat guano samples from Belize, where she later analyzed the samples to determine their diets. But first, it's time for Headlines. Today, reading headlines, we have Fulcrum's staff writer, Shaley Shaw, and the Fulcrum's features editor, Amira Benjamin. Welcome to the broadcast.
3: Give peas a chance, and pistachios, fava beans, and pumpkin seeds, too. The Guardian is reporting that there is a strong push right now in the culinary world to replace the avocado as a restaurant staple. While delicious and naturally creamy, the avocado can these days be found just about anywhere. It might even be on the toast you had for breakfast. But avocados leave an enormous carbon footprint and require nearly 320 litres of water to grow a single avocado. Last year in Toronto, Mexican chef Aldo Camarena recently suggested a guacamole alternative made with courgette and pumpkin seed paste. In 2018, the Irish restauranter J.P. McMahon called avocados the blood diamonds of Mexico.
4: Pro Bono Students Canada, the University of Ottawa's Common Law Branch, and KindSpace Ottawa are working together to host a trans ID clinic from November through March of 2022. The clinic will open monthly on the second Monday and fourth Wednesday from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. and will offer free legal services for those who identify as part of the trans community. The clinic will be run by University of Ottawa students in the common law faculty who will be able to provide resources and information on the changing process for names and gender designations. The clinic will also have lawyers on site to offer notary services for such documents. For members of the trans community, adjusting legal documents to reflect their gender identity and preferred name can impact their sense of dignity as well as their health and safety. The clinic is located at Kind Space on 400 Cooper Street, in Suite 900, and will accept both in-person and virtual appointments.
3: Early this week, a nationwide state of emergency was put in effect immediately across Ethiopia, as authorities told citizens to prepare to defend the country's capital city, Addis Abba, as fighters from the northern region of Tigray have been marching closer and threatening to attack the city. The country will be under state of emergency for the next six months. Roadblocks will be established, transportation services will be disrupted, and curfews will be imposed as the military will take over authority of many regions. Anyone who is suspected of having links with terrorist groups could be detained without warrant, and any citizen who is considered of age to fight could be called to military service. Also this week, the United States government has announced it would revoke trade privileges to Ethiopia due to gross violations of internationally recognized human rights. This move strikes a new blow to Ethiopia's already devastated economy.
4: The board of directors of the University of Ottawa Students' Union met last week during their monthly meeting. The meeting consisted of ratifying Equity Commissioner Sena al Engineering Director Chloe Bergeron, and Interim Clubs and Services Commissioner Zachary Fleho. The Board of Directors continued to vote on several motions regarding recommendations to be made at the upcoming Fall General Assembly, which will be held virtually on November 15th. A significant motion that just passed to be presented is the salary increase of University of Ottawa Students' Union executives, increasing from $31,000 to $34,000. This salary increase would come into effect at the beginning of the next term.
3: An inquest has begun this week in Smithers, British Columbia, into the 2016 police killing of 73-year-old Shirley Williams who was shot and killed, along with her son Jovan, by four RCMP officers who came into their house in the small northern community. After initially getting into an altercation with a neighbor, Shirley and Jovan died when officers came into their house. Jovan was shot behind the house and Shirley was killed moments later. In her final years, Shirley suffered from mental health issues and paranoia. Her condition was well known by the community, to the local medical professionals, and to the police when they arrived. Initially, a report by the Independent Investigations Office of BC found the officers were justified in firing at Shirley and Jovan, as the police reported both mother and son were carrying firearms. The inquest underway right now hopes to shed more light on the tragedy.
4: The University of Ottawa Students' Union and Climate Justice U Ottawa have called on the university to fully divest from fossil fuel divestment. This follows the news of the University of Toronto announcing their plan to fully divest by 2030. The university initially rejected the idea of divestment in 2016, following the publication of a report by the U of O's Finance and Treasury Committees entitled Addressing Global Warming. The university's executive committee defended the decision, stating that it believed ongoing research into low-carbon technologies at the U of O held the potential for an impact far greater than might be achieved by divestment. During the 2017-18 year, the university released Action on Climate Change by the University of Ottawa, another report in regards to climate change in which it claimed to reduce its carbon footprint by at least 30% by 2030. However, this wasn't enough for Climate Justice Ottawa, and the campus club held a protest on Friday, October 29th, asking for the university to end its relationship with RBC, one of the largest contributors to pipelines in the country.
3: A man was arrested in Tokyo for the attempted murder of 17 people on a subway train. The man was wearing a Joker costume and dressed like the Batman villain. He set fire to the train as it was in transit between stations and began attacking people with a knife. Violent crime is rare in Japan, but in August, nine people were wounded after a stabbing on a light rail train in Tokyo. In another attack in August, two people suffered burns in an acid attack at a Tokyo subway station. Due to strict gun laws, when violent crimes do occur in Japan, they typically don't involve guns. The man arrested this week in the Joker costume was quoted by police as saying he wanted to kill multiple people in order to receive the death penalty.
2: Reimagine Ottawa is a local grassroots organization that is focused on bringing to light some of the questionable policies that the city of Ottawa has been pushing. The policies seem questionable because they always tend to favor big development. Moreover, in Ottawa, the city continues to continuously sell or give away much of its green space. Parks, trees, shoreline, wherever they can pave over paradise, they seemingly try to. Wherein the problems that continue to arise is that it is becoming quite apparent that the citizens of Ottawa are continuously left with less and less. We've spoken endlessly on this show about the ongoing issues with OC Transpo. We have a train that doesn't run and its fares are about to go up making Ottawa's public transit system one of the most expensive fees in the country. All this for a system that does not work and the most expensive trains purchased of any major Canadian city that do not run. Now another legacy project, the proposed hospital. The hospital would be built on much of what is the central experimental farm. If you haven't heard of the experimental farm, it's easy to see on a map. It is a massive land site in the middle of Canada's capital city that has been around for over a hundred years. The farm is home to a lot of plant life and research that has gone on within the Canadian agriculture and scientific community since John A. Macdonald was the Prime Minister. Say what you want about him. I'm only using that as a frame of reference. I went to an event, Reimagine Ottawa, hosted on the farm, where they took me around and showed me some of the many species of trees from around the world that have been grown by scientists here for decades. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Reimagine Ottawa.
5: Uh, so, uh, Val, can you tell me your first and last name? My first name is Valerie. My last name is Swinton. Yeah, and Val,
2: tell me about Reimagine Ottawa.
5: Reimagine Ottawa started in 2016 right after the flip from Tunney's Pasture recommended by the NCC was transferred to the um, Central Experimental Farm. So a small group of us got together, had a press conference led by Clive Doucette, who was a former city councillor, and made our case asking why. Why was that decision made and what was the process involved in making it?
2: And so... If we could go back to that for a second, tell me about Tunney's pasture. What did the NCC decide about that?
5: Well, they looked at 12 different sites. All of the sites were vetted and approved by the key stakeholders, particularly the Ottawa Hospital Board, and they It took six months to look at all kinds of considerations, primarily what the hospital needed to succeed, but also looking at the issues around a national capital and throwing in what their mandate is to look after Canada's capital and the land on it.
2: So the land here on the experimental farm, is it not protected?
5: Apparently not. It is a National Historic Site, but it appears that from a 2014 decision when um, the federal government thought they might put the hospital right across from the existing uh, civic hospital uh, property to this decision, it didn't seem to be very difficult to take 40 acres of the central experimental farm.
2: So uh, just to touch base again on Tunney's Pasture, how is that land different than this land exactly for people who might not know exactly where that is?
5: Well, Tunney's plas- uh, Pasture is flat. It has existing but aging buildings, some of which are uh, slated for demolition. It has good um, access, public access, by um, public transport and by vehicle it's, it's a better site. It doesn't have a fault line. Um, and it's a much better site in many ways. Yeah.
2: So what is a fault line?
5: Oh, a fault line. This is an ancient... Um, fault line caused by an earthquake, it is said to be inactive, that's the word, and inactive is defined, I believe, by not having any activity for 10,000 years. So that sounds pretty safe. However, other sources that I've checked say that we have... Um, a possibility in the next 50 years of a level three earthquake which uh, rattles buildings and uh, you know shakes your bed Mm -hmm. (laughs) and your dishes so that concerns me.
2: Okay how many trees do they want to cut down?
5: Well it depends who you talk to. We have a a tree guy who's been studying the um, environmental impact statement that was behind the master plan and he found that some trees were mislabeled some trees were missed. for example the central the um, historic hedge collection is counted as one tree and it's <laughs> You know, hedge after hedge after hedge, and it's been there, I think, since the late 1800s. So there were lots of issues with that study, and our count is around 600 mature and specimen trees will be lost. And those that are left, we're very concerned about because you can't grow a massive tree and interrupt its root system with paving. So we wonder whether they'll survive in the long run. Some of these trees are over 100 years old. You know, they're part of the history of Ottawa, and they are magnificent trees, and they're all kinds of different species that don't grow anywhere but on the experimental farm.
2: And if we were to leave these trees, they have a lot of life left in them. They're not ready to die, right?
5: Not as far as I know. There has been an assessment done on what age and condition the trees are in, but we know that that part of the study was flawed as well because we know of trees that perhaps drop their leaves at a different time, and so they look like they're 60% uh, gone, but they're not. It's just their own cycle. Mm -hmm.
2: Is there anything else you want to say?
5: Well, we want to do everything we can to protect the central experimental farm, and we're also Concerned. The reason we got into this was because of the way the decision was made. We have seen problems at City Council with developer influence, and that's one of our main concerns. What is going on? Why was that decision made? Someone has done um, some, uh, had a really good look at what development potential would be lost if the hospital were to have been built there. And it's estimated that $2.3 billion worth of development in high rise condos and office buildings is saved at Tannies by not using that site. We don't have any facts, we only have suspicions. Wow.
2: Thank you very much, Val.
5: Thank you. Hi,
2: what's your name? Louise. Louise, hi. And, hi, and what are you doing here today?
6: I came because I love trees. And I was really curious about what the, uh, the walk would be like. Plus, I know that these trees are endangered because of the hospital mm-hmm. that's going to be built here. Yes.
2: And, and what would be the problem with building the hospital here?
6: Well, I think these trees are just so precious. And... In a way, it's kind of ironic because a hospital is supposed to... The whole goal of a hospital is to make us more healthy, but why are we chopping down trees that make us healthy to build the hospital? Why not build it at Tunney's Pasture where where we don't have to chop down trees? Like, I don't get it. Anything else you'd like to say? Um, I think that in our Western culture, we do not value trees enough we just take them for granted and we we don't understand all the incredible gifts that they bring us um and you know we can't build a tree it's magic really we no one can really explain how a tree grows really so i think it's just such a shame that that they're endangered because of the hospital
2: thank you very much louise
6: my
7: pleasure good luck hello what's your name my name is Noel Lomer. Nice to be with you, Damien.
2: Yeah, nice to be with you, Noel. And uh, how long have you been coming to this park? Or the farm, I should say. How long have you been coming to the farm?
7: I started um, by volunteering at the farm, as part of the uh, Friends of the Farm. And then I heard that the uh, hospital intended to build on this site. So... I no longer go to work with Friends of the Farm, which is maintaining the gardens and so on. I'm still trying to save the farm by getting the decision to build the hospital site on the 50 acres of this land, getting that decision reversed. Yeah, so I've been doing this how long? Five, six years. And. <laughs> Now, I heard you speak
2: about, uh, was it the hedge rows?
7: Yes, the uh, old hedge collection is a historic collection of hedges which are used as samples to start hedges across the country. And it uh, is part of the ornamental gardens. And when the original hospital plan was, uh, was proposed, there was a promise that we will not... Touch the ornamental gardens. Well, the um, old hedge collection, which was started in 1897, is going to be destroyed. Uh, it, it, they've broken another promise. They will to, will destroy it. So, a- did
2: you say 1897?
7: 1897. The old hedge collection was started. Yeah, and these these uh, trees. Some of them are a hundred years old. They've they've been really carefully. Uh, maintained and, and uh, kept in healthy condition and, and looked after by the staff of the experimental farm for hundred years in some cases.
2: Yeah. So a hundred years is that a long time? Are these trees ready to go or is there no,
7: no they're healthy trees and that's one of the things that the survey of the area showed that um, many of these trees are, are very healthy, very very durable. And provide uh, stock for seed seed stock for anyone who wants to start to germinate their own tree seeds. You know, it's all here. You just have to come. So, besides being beautiful, it's really useful.
2: Is it easy to grow trees, or how hard is it?
7: I find it very tricky. <laughs> I find it difficult. Uh, there's all kinds of things to do. Uh, uh, you may you may need to st- what's called stratify a seed. You know, c- keep it cold uh, in a fridge for a month and two months, and then before you plant it, so that that helps to uh, to germinate the seed. And then you have to um, grow it in a way that you can um, later transplant it without damaging it. So it's tricky. I mean, you kind of admire these trees for their their success in producing such beautiful specimens. Because uh, it is yeah it does take some some work to do that. Yeah. Very satisfying too actually, when you see a tree growing and and, it, and you know that um, maybe you've seen it growing for 10, 20 years, but it's going to outlive you and it's going to be there a long time.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, how can anybody get involved with Reimagine Ottawa?
7: Well, the simplest thing is through our website reimagine and uh, you know, you go online, you'll see uh, information about our program and what we're trying to do. We're trying to yeah. now address the Ontario government to say the site on experimental, experimental farm property at Dow's Lake is a very bad site. It's, a, it's, it's It was a bad decision, and it's expensive. It's going to be destructive. It's going to cause a great deal of trouble to uh, people trying to access the site. It's going to be... Expensive for many reasons. It's multi-level. It's not a sick, it's not a bedrock foundation. So they have to do all kinds of things to uh, um, make it workable. Site. It's it's going to cause huge traffic congestion and many many problems that could be solved in other locations. The uh, NCC uh, work uh, for seven months to qualify uh, the best site for the hospital. They suggested Tunney's pasture. Still a great location. Then there's other locations that could be could be developed um, to avoid the mega hospital. I mean, this is a gigantic hospital. They're planning to have twenty thousand people working at the hospital when it's in full service. Can you imagine the traffic and the congestion? So um, there's um, lots of good reasons to look at other alternatives better alternatives and so we're trying to ask the Ontario government to say hold it this is going to cost a lot of money it's going to cost a lot more than the 2.8 billion dollars that they've said the cost will be It's going to cost a lot more. It's going to. It's not going to give the service, hospitals, the health service that's needed for a growing community, especially in areas around the city. The suburban and rural areas are not. They're going to real have trouble getting access into the hospital. So there are lots of better alternatives. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Well, um, come and enjoy the beauty of this site. You know, we. uh, uh, I'm. um, not gonna uh, I'm, I'm not going to quit trying. I'm not going to fail until I quit trying, and I'm not going to quit trying. And uh, so uh, people should come here. It's an area, uh, roughly, if you drive along Carling Avenue and then turn onto Maple Drive, and then basically everything to your east. On Maple Drive, that is going to be part of this 50-acre area, which uh, is intended for the hospital site. It's going to be levelled and turned into parking lots and building sites. So come and see it. Enjoy it. It's beautiful.
2: See it before it's gone.
7: That's right.
2: Thank you, Noel. (laughs) Thanks, Damien. Uh, Val, can you tell me about the petition?
5: Yes, we have a petition that is calling for an inquiry into how and why the decision was made to reject Tunney's Pasture as a site for the hospital and replace it with uh, 40 acres of the experimental farm and another 10 or so on Queen Juliana Park. 6,000 signatures are there, and I hope everyone will go there and sign it. It's on the Reimagine Ottawa website. Awesome. And
2: is there anything else you'd like to say?
5: Just thanks a lot, Damien, for this interview. It's we're trying so hard to get the word out. Very few people still know that we're losing this beautiful corner of Ottawa on a national historic site. We need to save it.
2: Absolutely. Thank you very much, Val. Earlier this week, I went around the Byward market with our features editor, Amira Benjamin. We spoke to different people we met in the street and asked them what they thought some of the biggest issues facing the people of Ottawa was today. Listener discretion is advised right now because there's some strong language that comes out in one of these conversations. I thought that it was better, though, to keep it in, and so there is no bleeped version of this episode. If you have children in the room or you're sensitive to language, listener discretion is advised. I'm in the ByWord market with Amira Benjamin. Amira, what are we doing here?
4: We're asking people in ByWord what the biggest issue facing Ottowans is today. Okay, cool. That's okay. Cool. This is Amira. Nice to meet you. What's your name? Amanda. Nice to meet you, Amanda. Nice to meet
2: you. Uh, Yeah, pretty much in Ottawa right now, it's all the COVID stuff going on, and uh, the economy, I find, is really bad compared to a couple years ago. But in my opinion, that's the worst thing right now. Yeah. It's just uh, people's mental health is very uh, sensitive right now, and it's it's bad. (laughs) We need big changes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What is one change that could happen that would help people um you know i think more the government's understanding of what people are going through right now uh if they were to understand more then i think things could really change um i think right now they're focusing too much on their own plans and they're not focusing enough on their people and yeah you're welcome have a good day
4: Uh, my name is danielle i'm savannah so the four government announced that they're going to increase minimum wage a dollar to $15 an hour. How do you guys feel about that?
6: Um, not good, I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't, <laughs> Wait, what? I don't even get paid $15. <laughs> um, yeah, so not good, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, just work as a server, so I don't really make like that wage, I guess.
4: Yeah, uh, they yeah. announced that they would um, increase the minimum wage to fifteen for servers as well.
6: Oh, okay, that's pretty cool.
4: Yeah. So you, so how do you feel about that? Uh, in addition to tipping.
6: Well, if I had that wage and tips, that'd be really cool. Cause I make like twelve ninety five right now, yeah. like plus my tips. So like, uh, that'd be really nice. <laughs> nice to meet
8: you <laughs> Nice yes. to meet you too. Thanks thank for the thank help. You very yeah, much. Gonna,
4: what's your
9: name? Bruce. Bruce, nice to meet you. Too
8: little, too late for the uh, for the uh, increase on the on the lower scale of the uh, increase. But uh, the other one, Re- remind me. I'm a oh, little tired today. The right today. to disconnect. The right to disconnect. Time for that too. Uh, do we're you- we're way way too technological? I don't have a, an iPhone. I don't have any, uh, any accounts on any social media. I hate it when I see and I'm walking down the street and people have their head down in their phones or when they're in the bus and talking to them and ignoring their own little children. So I am totally at the point where I would talk to each other, you idiots. <laughs>
6: yeah, so do
4: you believe that this right to disconnect will help people stay more connected? I well, hope
8: that they will be better uh, um, connected to their families mm-hmm. and their friends instead of to their work.
4: And do you think this will definitely help a lot of families who've been working from home during the pandemic? I hope
8: so. Yes, very much so. Thank, Thank you. Very much. You're quite Thank
2: welcome. You so much. I didn't. Re- I didn't want to record without record your permission, it, though. Yeah,
10: you know. Go ahead. Record it.
2: Uh, yeah. And what's your name, sir?
10: My name is Gregory McEwen. Yeah. Gregory Anthony McEwen. And,
2: and what do you think is the biggest issue facing people on the streets right now?
10: Right now it's... Um, <laughs> on the streets right now it's a lot. Uh, what do you start with? You start with... Um, well, it's the it's, it's homelessness. They have nowhere to go. And the government is trying to push them from one side, Vanier, get them off the streets, and now they're in front of business and stuff like that. And... Oh, I don't know where to start with it, man, because it's too much Business owners don't know how to cooperate with this Because they have to wake up in the morning and and clean these sidewalks Because somebody peed on it And tourists are going by And this is a city, it's a nice city But it looks like crap, this is a major city But it looks like shit Mm -hmm. You know why? Because the government don't put these people where they're supposed to be In certain places, to take care of them They all need help, I need help too You know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah. So um, I I wanted to ask you again about the bathrooms. How does that affect people?
10: Because well, I gotta go pee right now. Where am I supposed to go? Where am I supposed to go? I can't just walk into any place and go. I can't ask them to use a washroom because of COVID. I got double Moderna. I got two shots. I got two shots of Moderna, but I still need print on my passport to prove that I can use a washroom. At the same time, I have to buy something to use a washroom. So what if I have no money to buy anything? I have to use a washroom. What am I supposed to do? Mm I don't pee right here. Simple as that. I'm going to be right there in the street. I'll take a ticket.
2: Here's our science editor, Emma Williams. Hey, Emma. Hi, Damien. How are you?
0: I'm well, thank you.
2: And so, what's new in science this week?
0: So, this week I interviewed Lauren Gallant, who is a PhD candidate here at the University of Ottawa and we discussed her research involving fresh bat guano samples from Belize.
2: And what is bat guano?
0: Bat guano is essentially just an accumulation of bat excrement.
2: Oh, cool. Uh, well, I can't wait to hear it.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Enjoy.
0: So I'm wondering if you could tell me sort of what was more of like the goal behind your study? and what you were hoping to accomplish?
1: Um, So this was a very exploratory study. um, And we really wanted to push the limits, I guess, of the methods that we would normally use in limnology. So looking at um, bodies of water, a lot of the methods we apply are commonly used on those sediments within that water, because you can look at changes in the chemistry or the composition of those sediments over time and um, see how lakes have been influenced or ponds have been influenced. And we often relate that to natural disasters or human impacts. And so um, our collaborators actually stumbled across this back guano deposit and they thought, hey, you guys look at lake sediments all the time. Why don't you see what you can find in this back guano core? And so that was really kind of the the, the starting point of this um, research project was to see, can well, can we apply those methods, methods from limnology to a a different field, to more so ecology, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. and look at whether or not we can see how bats have been affected by natural or anthropogenic or human-related changes over time. And so it was kind of in one sense um, an exploration of methods and expansion of those methods into other fields and basically utilizing everything possible to uh, answer a question. Um, And then secondary... um, that's our just this marvelous group of animals that uh, carry all these different ecosystem services that we really benefit from. So, they're natural insecticides, and in that they can consume up to 100% of their body weight in a single night of feeding. So, if you relate that to like insects, like mosquitoes, we really would like bats to continue eating their body weight mosquitoes every night. Like that's something humans love and I don't think fully appreciate. So they do that. They help with seed dispersal. They help with pollination. So it's really important that we keep our bat populations healthy and happy because they do so many things that we benefit from it and that the ecosystem benefits from. So because of that, I think it's important to understand how bats are affected by both natural anthropo- and anthropogenic events. And so by doing this, Um, this I guess uh, analysis back through time through thousands of years and looking at how they've been affected um, by changes in diet or anthropogenic or natural events it gives us an idea of like do they recover how do they change how much are they influenced and just gives us something to keep in mind that you know all the little things we do can add up to ultimately affect how a species behaves and and that species might be doing more for us than we truly appreciate Um, so just kind of bringing awareness to them.
0: Um, actually, I want to just touch back. Did you notice a shift from them switching from insect eating to like fruit eating, or and like was that because of us? Did, did we have some effect there?
1: Yeah. So we found two instances where they switched to more fruit based uh, feeding. We mm-hmm. saw it occurred mostly during um, during periods of warmer or drier conditions, um, where we saw the increase to more fruit based eating, which makes sense because. Insects often, I guess, rely on like a wetter climate. So if you're getting warmer, drier conditions, perhaps the insects weren't as favorably present and they bats, uh shifted to a more fruit-based diet um, or that we actually saw a shift in the composition of the bat colony. Again, that was our other hypothesis. and We're not able to distinguish which occurred and it could be a combination of the two. Um, but e- e- yes, in the guano deposit, there are two instances of increased fruit feeding over insect feeding more environmental conditions, I guess you say we could say are natural conditions. But I mean we know that humans can impact the climate as well.
0: Is there a specific diet that's more favorable to the bats or is it just like species dependent, like you said?
1: Species dependent, yeah. Okay. So each bat's biology is set up to process things differently. So fruit-based bats are fruit-based eating bats are well equipped to handle fruits and, and insects to an extent and then vice versa. Um, but it's well known that some insectivorous bats need to consume more fruits during certain times of the years to make up for things that they're lacking in their insect-based diet, or they'll use mineral licks. So it's not uncommon to see diet switching or um, kind of a combination of the two. But they are they are built physically to eat, you know, certain things over others.
0: Yeah, I'm just wondering what the sterols and stanols tell you about their diet. Is okay. there are they like a signature for a certain
3: compound
1: um they kind of they give you more information about like a general diet um so for example sterols and stanols, you can have um more you can have zoo sterols so like animal derived sterols so that would be like cholesterol or coprostanol so things that we often find in mammals so you're certainly going to find those in bats as they are mammals but you might find greater concentrations if they're also consuming um Insects, for example, because you also have high concentrations of cholesterol and carprosanol in insects. Um, versus if you're looking at phytosterols, those are plant-derived sterols. Um, and so when you're looking at plant matter, they have really high concentrations of things like cetosterol or stigmasterol. So when we looked at a bat guano sample, if there was more phytosterols, such as cetosterol or stigmastanol, then we'd, um, we'd predict that these bats are probably frugivorous bats, so eating fruits, that are naturally more concentrated in these sterols or that it, maybe it's an insectivorous fat, but because of a lack of its preferred diet, it had to switch to a more fruit-based diet and vice versa. So if we look at a guano sample and there's almost no um, phytosterols, so it's all like zoo sterols, animal derived products, we would predict more that this, uh, this bat is most likely feeding perhaps on, um, insects or other uh, mammals. Some of that's eat other small animals, mammals. So kind of look at the ratio of those two phytosterols and zoosterols in order to get an idea of what they're consuming. And it gets you a little bit more specific or it gets you a little bit more detail than um, isotopes do. Isotopes do a great job, but they can be a little bit more fussy.
0: Okay. So
1: in terms of results
0: then, what did you see?
1: Um, So we saw two periods within the backwano deposit from Jamaica, where the um like the ratios of the sterols told us that there were two periods of increased fruit eating relative to insect eating um so that means either two things one that the composition of the bat colony changed during those two periods to have more fruit eating bats relative to insect eating bats or two that there was a shift in diet so that could mean the same bats always occupy the space but perhaps um, there are fewer insects at this time due to a natural disaster, for example, and that bats are forced to switch to a more fruit-based diet. Um, so that's generally what we saw in the bat guano deposit. The guano samples from Belize helped us confirm this. So we, because this bat guano deposit from Jamaica was a compilation of guano from many species of bats, I think there were five species, um, we thought it was important to also collect, collect guano from species-specific bats. And that was the purpose of going to Belize because we had a guano sample from a known bat species who we knew what their diet was. And so when we looked at the guano or the composition of the guano from those individual species from Belize, we could see that, yes, in fact, um, fruit eating bats have this general composition of sterile insect eating bats have this general composition. When we compare that to the core, if we see a fluctuation, you know, towards one side of the spectrum or another, we can say, oh, yes, this is, again, we saw previously more fruit-based Uh, eating versus insect eating. So the Belize sampling was very much a a checkpoint or I guess a check in order to verify what we were uh, observing in the uh, Bacquano deposit from Jamaica.
0: And actually, uh, you mentioned you got to go to Belize twice. I'm wondering if you could share with me one of like the more memorable days in the field that you had.
1: Okay, Uh, great question. Um, I think this always moment always stands out to me the most. Um, so I arrived to Belize not really knowing really what you're getting into. Like it's one thing to hear about it. It's another thing to arrive in a different country and go start collecting bats at night. So I remember we were in the room prior to going sampling and we've got all our gear ready to go. And, you know, you're wearing your bug suits and you've got everything. And we're just, we take, take off. There's probably 20 of us on a trail. We're in the middle of... Like the forest, like we're in the middle of nowhere. It's we're very deep in the forest. We're very alone. And it's just like 20 people walking through this forest. And then all of it like we're walking for probably 20 minutes or so. And then all of a sudden the forest opens up and it's the Mayan ruins. And it's this big clearing. And it's, I think I believe it was a temple, but like we're in the middle of the Mayan ruins now, in Belize in the jungle, about to collect bats And that was just something like you know is going to happen, but until you like i think are there and step out into it It was a very cool moment and a very like i can't believe i'm here moment and that this is what i'm doing right now it was Mm -hmm. very cool very something very like very privileged to be able to have that opportunity and that experience it was
0: was neat yeah that's very cool you had your own indiana jones moment yeah exactly (laughs) exactly well good luck Mm -hmm. thank you so much again for meeting with me of course thank you Good luck with your further research
2: Here with the latest of what's happening with the Gigi's is the Fulcrum Sports Editor, Jasmine McKnight.
9: It is playoff season for the Gigi's. Over the break, the men's rugby team traveled to Montreal for the RSEQ semifinals. They suffered a first-round exit at the hands of the Concordia Stingers. The game didn't lack scoring, with a final score of 31-21. This game was the last for several players who have impacted the program through their transition into a varsity club team. It sucks to see them lose the opportunity to play at Nationals. All season, they were a really exciting team to watch. You really couldn't help but root for those guys. On a brighter note, the women's rugby team is headed to the RSEC championship with the hopes of snapping their losing streak to Laval. The team's met twice in the regular season, with the Gs falling both times. The GGs are coming off a huge 37 win and should have their confidence up for this rematch. Regardless of the result, the team will be making their seventh consecutive appearance at U Sports Nationals next week. The women's soccer team finished their regular season undefeated for the eighth time in program history and are now switching to playoff mode. The Gigi's have a lot of firepower, including Emma Lefebvre, who led the OUA with 12 goals. They start things off with a quarterfinal matchup against the Rams at Matt Anthony Field. The football team will be in Toronto on Saturday to take on the U of T for their quarterfinal game. The Gigi's have gone through a long, hard-fought season and really need to connect in order to make a playoff run. Eyes will be on quarterback Ben Maracle, as well as kicker Campbell Fair. The GGs went 3-3 three and three in the regular season. Two of their three wins were over Carlton. Finally, the hockey teams are hitting the ice. The men's hockey team opener is against the Carlton Ravens. Then they'll get on the road and to take on McGill on Saturday. Two more teams are starting things off this week. Both the men's and women's basketball teams are in Montpetit Hall, welcoming York on Friday and Saturday. Both nights, the women have the floor at five, followed by the men at eight. It will be interesting to see how the women's team has adjusted since leaders like Brooklyn McClear Fannis and Angela Ribbs graduated. The men's team went undefeated in preseason matchups and looked to carry that momentum forward into regular season play. The women's volleyball team is still trying to earn a win. 0-3 in the season, the team really needs to turn things around to avoid a repeat of the 2019 year. They have an opportunity this Sunday on the road. Good luck to all the GGs in playoffs and to those just getting things going this year. Everyone else, drink lots of water and stay warm.
2: Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to everyone involved in this week's show. Back with a vengeance is Shelly Shaw. Amir Benjamin is out there in the streets bringing you stories that matter. Emma Williams is probably gonna reinvent the periodic table someday. Jasmine McKnight wanted to stay in New Orleans, but we roped her back in. Music and sound design by Cameron Rankin. You've been listening to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. See you next week.